You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with uh, Ian Tattersall, who is the Emeritus Curator at the American Museum for Natural History in New York, and also the author of a wide range of books, both by himself and with his co-author, Rob DeSalle. Most recent book is The Accidental Homo Sapiens, which builds on a lot of your previous work, including this one, Masterpiece, The Master's of the planet, the search for our human origins. He's also got a book called Troublesome Science, Misuse of Genetics and Genomics in Understanding Race, The Strange Case of the Rickety Cossack, Hoax, 5,000 Years of Fakes, and then some other books called Natural History of Wine and Natural History of Beer, which I certainly found that one, (laughs) the wine one at least, very appealing to uh, research. (laughs) Yeah, that was probably the most enjoyable of your research. But I want to welcome you in and talk a bit about anthropology, paleontology, archaeology, and all of these related disciplines. Welcome, Ian. Well, thank you. So I think that one of the concerns of your work is trying to figure out what makes humans unique. I think most people kind of know, but don't really appreciate the degree to which there were many other competitors out there, many other hominids. We like to think about chimpanzees and and bonobos and other primates, but we split off from them a really, really long time ago. But far more recently, we had these these other cousins kind of out there on the landscape competing with us. I think people are now, you know, people are aware of Neanderthals and Florensis and a couple other competitors. But Humans were, were really just bit players on the, on the landscape until fairly recently. We kind of wiped them all out. I think you used the term, we left them in, in the dust. And so what exactly was the human superpower? We've seen all these definitions of humans as the naked ape, the bi- featherless biped, the opposable thumbs. <laughs> you know, there's all these different ways of defining human uniqueness. But, but I think you really have a, a thesis on this, what makes humans unique. Well, yeah, I think we're misled by the fact that we're the only kind of hominid in the world today. Well, we think it's natural because that's what we know and that's what we're used to. But in fact, probably that has, until about 30, 40,000 years ago, that was not the case at all. And it wasn't the case right to the uh, beginning of the hominid family to which we belong. So I think that tells us right there that there is something about us that is very unusual. Hominids, members of our zoological family, have usually been able to live together, somehow partition the environment, partition the planet among them. And of course, we haven't done that. Homo sapiens hasn't done that. And that tells you there's something unusual going on. And I think what it is, what the secret ingredient is, the fact that it's the way that we manipulate information in our minds, the fact that we reason symbolically, fact that unlike other animals which seem to sort of appreciate the environment around them in a holistic fashion, we decompose it or we deconstruct it into a vocabulary of mental symbols. And then we can move those symbols around in our minds to recreate new visions of the world, 
and to plan and to not only to imagine the world could be otherwise, but actually do something about it. And I think that is what makes us unique. And that's what made us an insuperable competitor for all of our um, fellow hominids. Once our ancestors, Homo sapiens, had left Africa where it was born and got out into the rest of the world. So do we know for a fact that our competitors lacked this capacity? I think they certainly were hunters. They were organized in in groups. They presumably were able to engage in coordinated action, right? What evidence do we have to suggest that there is this qualitative difference between Homo sapiens and, and the other Homo? Yeah, I think the best evidence we have is that is what we have managed to do to not only to our nearest and dearest, but to the entire planet in a very, very short space of time. I think that if other hominids had this capacity, hominids that occupied the planet before we were there, if they'd had this capacity, they would have showed it in some way, maybe not by wholesale trashing of the environment as we have done, but at least in some way that would leave a mark, very special mark in the archaeological record. And that didn't happen. They were much better in balance with the environment than we are. So you point to evidence from the artwork in caves. You talk about some of the kind of artifacts that would appear to symbolize some kind of culture. So is it simply the absence of these these artifacts associated with other hominids? Do we rely on the physical record or is there also kind of anatomical evidence that humans are different? That's a very interesting question and can be answered in a number of different ways. And yes, Homo sapiens is very distinctive as a species. And I think that what is really important to understand is that the very first Homo sapiens who were distinctive, as distinctive as we are, and who were indistinguishable effectively uh, from us anatomically, didn't seem to behave the same way that we behave. And so this particular way that we have of manipulating information in our brains and then transmitting that to the world around us is something that actually happened within the tenure of our own species as a distinctive entity in the world. Yeah, I think you say in the book that we had the anatomical prerequisites uh, that they existed Mm -hmm. sort of before language and we kind of discovered that we had this capacity. This is kind of an interesting hypothesis because normally we think that everything that has evolved has had some initial functional reason for evolving. And I think you're, you're kind of looking to language more as an X adaptation or a spandrel in, in the words of Gould. Is that kind of, how does that happen? Yeah, that's how I'm looking at it, basically. The thing to, that we really have to understand is that you can't do something new unless you already have the capacity to do it. And so the, the structure has to be there before you can start behaving in a different way. So in that sense, yes, you are looking at acceptation. You're looking at uh, a capacity that was acquired in some different context and then was co-opted within the uh, tenure of our species to a new way of thinking. And of course, what we're talking about here is the brain. And we don't have any fossil brains that will tell us what was going on inside them, unfortunately. We can we have endocasts, uh, natural and artificial, of what brains look like on the outside. 
but that really doesn't tell us how they organized and how they were functioning. So we have to infer that from what their possessors were actually doing and the traces of their activities that they left behind them. The story seems to have been that the last major biological event in our species history was the origin of the species itself. We are very distinctive, the way our bodies are constructed, the way our heads are constructed, and that appeared around 200,000 years ago in Africa. And all we have there is the bony skeleton. And we know that whatever the event was, what the, whatever the basis in genetics was for this event, it had ramifications all around the visible hard tissues of the body that we actually have preserved. And I think we can assume that it had ramifications in the soft tissues as well, including the brain. So at the beginning of the uh, tenure of Homo sapiens, you have a brain with a new potential. But it was functioning in the, the old way because there was continuity between the old and the new. And um, at some point, some necessarily behavioral stimulus had to occur to kick this new potential in the brain into actually functioning. And my candidate for this stimulus would have been the spontaneous invention of language, which we know can be invented by modern people very quickly. Yeah, you tell the story about, right, the deaf kids in Nicaragua who developed language. So language doesn't have to be kind of vocalized, right? You talk about the evolution of the larynx and the physical structure that we need in order to articulate words and phonemes, but we could have language without that, right? Do you think that the physical capacity to, to vocalize language came first? You have some interesting theories about phonemes and and the importance of phonemes could you talk about kind of it, could sign language have come first and then vocal language or would have to have been vocal language well i think we got to distinguish between language and communication i think communication gestural communication vocal communication goes back a very long way in our lineage and we can be pretty pretty confident that Basically, all of our fossil relatives were communicating with each other in some way, but they probably weren't using language. And the reason why we look at, at sign language today is that everybody already has a vocal language. Nobody's going to create vocal language from scratch because it's already there. So we can't see vocal languages being, being invented, but we can see sign languages being invented. And the linguists have seen this in the Nicaraguan deaf school children who were all taken from normal speaking families and put together in uh, schools for the deaf for the first time, where they got together and had to communicate and had to invent their own sign language. And the point about sign languages is that they are every bit as complex as the spoken languages with all the rules and uh, so forth that govern the way that, that we speak. And uh, the people who are following this phenomenon of the emergence of this uh, sign language in Nicaragua have seen this language evolve and become much more complex as the generations have passed. And yet it's all really basically in evolutionary terms, it's all in an instant. So I think that communication goes back to the year dot, as far as that's concerned. But language is very different because language is rule-bound. It's different from other forms of communication and being, and being rule-bound and in allowing a virtually infinite number of um, 
thoughts to be expressed from a very small, just using a very small number of phonemes and formant sounds that we use. And that's what makes language peculiar. And language maps so closely onto thought for us that I'm sure that it was the invention of language that vocal language in this case, because there were no vocal languages, that is what stimulated the sort of feedback system in the brain that gave rise to symbolic thought. And that's something I just can't see happening over a long, long, long period of time, which is the way that most people look at it. Well, you tell the story about this one individual who kind of discovered language, right? Someone who was pre-language and then after a fairly mature age discovered language and it was like a you know light bulb Neat. going off. And you kind of hold that up as, hey, this, this is what must have happened at some point. Someone just woke up one day and said, wow, look at this. I can do language, right? So that suggests that the Neanderthals, they were communicating, presumably. I mean, it's the only way they could engage in, in collective mm-hmm. hunt. But you, you argue that there, it was sort of more of, it was an intuitive kind of thinking. And what, what would that be like? Oh, that, this is very interesting. And, and it's also part of the same story of the guy who you talked about who discovered language. And the way he discovered it, he was a deaf person who was never taught sign language, never taught anything to help him to communicate. And he wound up with a sign language teacher who finally realized there's something different about this student. And she realized that it was somebody who didn't know that things had names. Most of the sign language students who, who came to her at least knew that things had names and they wanted to know what the signs were that corresponded to the names and so on. This guy didn't have any idea that things had names. And when he discovered that they did, I mean, she describes this in extremely uh, emotional terms. It was a really big emotion, emotional event for him and he sobbed. And it turned out later on that he was a member of a a group of people who were in the same situation that he was. Then he learned that things had names and learned sign language. And he still hung out with his old friends. His old friends were, they were communicating in a sort of pantomime charade-like way. And it took them an awfully long time to express anything. And eventually he got totally impatient and stopped hanging out with them. So it's a very complex, it's a very, very, very complex story. And my version of it for Homo sapiens would be that language was not invented by adults, as Susan was looking at. The language, I'm sure, was invented by children. I think language is far too radical to be invented by adults who've already learned the way the way of the world and how things ought to be done. I bet. So how would Neanderthals communicate from generation to generation, the skills that they would need to survive, right? Whether it's the creation of weapons or organization of uh, collective activity, right? Don't you need language in order to kind of transmit that? I mean, you look at Mm -hmm. primates that have these cultures, right? So to speak, where they can crack open shells and stuff. I mean, these are kind of ephemeral, right? I mean, they don't really stick. They kind of come and go, right? Well, there are chimpanzees actually have archaeological sites where they have been cracking. They've been using stones to crack nuts for 4,000 years at least. Mm. So there is a cultural aspect to their forms of technology that get passed down individually in different populations. They're not in all populations, but each population individually passes down these traditions. But there's a 
big difference between that and the way in which we acquire information. What they say is that all species learn, but only Homo sapiens teaches. And you can teach in many ways. And there was a, uh, some Japanese colleagues several years ago now decided to divide a group of undergraduates who didn't know anything about archaeology or stone tools or anything in half. And one half of the class, they taught how to make a Neanderthal style of stone tool, which is a pretty sophisticated kind of thing and not easy to do. And they taught the class two ways. One half, they taught how to make the tools with elaborate verbal explanation while they were actually making the, the tool. So you had visual demonstration and you had verbal explanation as well. And the other half, they taught only by demonstration. The kids had to look and then try to pick up what was happening. And interestingly enough, both parts of the class, both groups learned equally quickly and equally efficiently. And it didn't seem to make any difference whether they had been had an explanation in addition to the demonstration. But most instructively of all possibly is in both parts of the class, there were people who never got the idea at all. Because making stone tools is a sophisticated kind of thing to do. It's not an easy kind of um, thing to do. And it takes a lot of intuition. And that's the kind of intelligence I think the Anatars had. And that's where we run into trouble even trying to talk about it. Because we are incapable, we're sort of prisoners of our own way of dealing with information. And we can't imagine what it is like to be smart and intuitive and skilled and resourceful, and yet not reason in exactly the same way that we do. We can't imagine what that is like. We, we just can't. I mean, I, it's a state of mind. You can and you're a prisoner of your own state of mind when you're trying to think about these things. So it's very hard. So, so you ask me, well, what was it like to be a Neanderthal? I can't tell you because I cannot put myself into a Neanderthal's shoes. All I know is that they were smart and skillful and, and all of these things. But what it was subjectively like to be a Neanderthal in the world, I don't know. And I don't, nobody does. And so last point on this, when we think about the extinction of these other hominids, did their extinction result from the proximity of their kind of ecological niche to the human one? We have bonobos and chimpanzees. They seem to, I mean, they're, they coexist, albeit in slightly different ecological niches. Is it just the similarity of the, uh, the niches? One thing that I found interesting was that the within a single chimpanzee troop, you said that there's more genetic diversity than there is within like all of, of humanity. Why don't we have some Neanderthals hanging out doing certain jobs or, you know, living in certain places and Florensis just kind of doing their thing over in, in their little niche? Is it because the niches are so similar? I think that's probably correct, that there were the most immediate competition. Humans came out of Africa maybe 70,000 years ago or thereabouts and rapidly spread all over the world, replacing the resident kinds of hominids who were there everywhere that they went. And I think if you want to put it in perspective, we started the job and we're still finishing it. I mean, in a couple of hundred years, I think you'll be very hard put to find a chimpanzee in the wild anymore. 
I mean, we are starting with our nearest and dearest who would have been, you know, Neanderthals in Europe. They would have been Homo erectus in Eastern Asia, would have been little Flores guy in Flores and so on. We started with them and now we're working on chimpanzees and orangutans and gorillas. They won't be around much longer and God knows how many other species are all becoming extinct in the environment. Unintentionally, I don't think we are going out to make any species extinct, but we're just having that effect. I mean, and the only ironclad rule of human nature really is it's a rule of uh, unintended consequences. And that's just the effect that we have. Yeah, I think you actually use this term psychozoa, which I found interesting, right? Which is the philosophers have said this, but biologists haven't said this. You argue that we might as well just create this whole new category of creatures and there's only one species in that category and that's the the psychozoa, right? Well, that that wasn't actually my term and I wouldn't recommend doing that at all. I, I think we do have deep roots in nature and we're still part of nature and whether we like it or not, we're going to have for our own good to live learn to live with nature. But Bernard Rentsch, who was a uh, psychologist and behaviorist in Germany back in the 1950s, proposed that humans were so different that they should be put in this category psychozoa, which makes no sense in uh, terms of ancestry and descent, which is usually what we uh, use as a criterion for grouping things together in uh, zoology. But it does show that small change in the algorithm that our brains use to process information created something completely new and unexpected. And we are an experiment that is still unraveling itself. Yeah. I think one of your points is that a very tiny change in the genotype can lead to a radical difference in the phenotype, right? And that evolution, we think of it as sort of this slow and gradual thing, but your argument is that it's at least in terms of its effect, it's like fits and starts. And if it does behave that way, it's usually because of bottlenecks, right? And you highlight there's this one key bottleneck in human history that happened about 75,000 years ago. I think it was Mount Toba. And as an historian, my knowledge kind of ends around 2,000 years, 2,500 years ago. I don't really go back before that. Homer's about as old as I get. But this seemed like a, a pretty momentous event. It was. It doesn't seem to have had any really lasting consequences, as a matter of fact. But you can detect the ash from the Mount Toba volcanic event as far away as South Africa. I mean, it's been detected in cave deposits. This Mount Toba was in Indonesia, is that correct? Yes, it was in Indonesia. Yeah, and it exploded. I mean, it was a much, much bigger explosion than Krakatoa which is the one that everybody remembers because that was in the 1880s, I think. But yeah, Montoba had this huge effect, but it seems not to have had any lasting effects. People have argued that, that it probably uh, had something to do with the, the shrinkage of human populations that uh, geneticists detect. And that goes back to what you were saying before about the um, chimpanzees having much more genetic variability than we do. And that is because of the whole human population came very close to going extinct sometime around 70,000 years ago, a little bit before that, maybe, uh, bit, probably because of the uh, very severe drying and aridification that was going on in Africa at around that time. And that the population was reduced and therefore the entire genetic variability in the species was reduced. 
would that little small population be the one that had the kind of magic ingredient that makes us us? It would have at that point, but I think everything, you know, all, all Homo sapiens all over Africa, all the local populations that became extinct would have had that as well. I think we've had that for 200,000 years. We've had our new way of crunching information maybe for the last 100,000 years. Now, you talk about molecular anthropologists. What is a molecular anthropologist? Are these, these are the folks that kind of look at our genetic uniqueness and look to the genome to figure out what makes us human? Exactly. Well, to, not necessarily to find out what makes us human, but to trace human history, for example. The genome has proven to be a very, very good way of tracing the way in which Homo sapiens took over the world and how populations moved. You can't do that from fossils, that the information is just not in fine enough grain. But the genomes produce this tremendous, huge database that can be mined for information of this kind. So your genetic and your genomic and your molecular anthropologists are the people who look at the variation, the differences between populations in genomic features, mainly for the purpose of reconstructing history. Now, when some people say that language, there's a gene for language, right? Which is the, the FOXP2 gene. And, and of course, this opens up a whole new can of worms about the gene for this and the gene for that, which I want to ask you about. But you say that this can't possibly be the key feature because it's shared by other hominids, right? Well, yes, it is. But you have to bear in mind that FOXP2 is a gene that has been implicated in language in the sense that it has to be working properly in order for you and me to be able to speak to each other. But it's one of maybe 300 or maybe 3,000, I don't know, genes that have to be working properly in order for us to use language. And so it's, well, it certainly can't be the gene. It's one of the genes that has to be working properly in order for us to communicate this way. It's a little misleading to think of it as the language gene. It's just one that we know. Well, you're, you talk about beanbag genetics. Right? I'd never heard this term before, but it's sort of a broadside against a very simplistic mapping of genes onto behavioral or, or physiological characteristics. And you're critical of folks who talk about the God gene or the gay gene or whatever. So why is it that you think in the pop, these are respectable scientists who do this, but why do you suppose in our popular conception, we're so gravitated towards this idea of beanbag genetics, gene for this, gene for that? Yeah, because our minds are reductionist. We want to understand the world and we want to understand it in terms that we can readily relate to. And the idea that a gene is responsible for something in a one-to-one -one correspondence gives us an easy way to explain it to ourselves. It doesn't have anything to do with reality. Most genes are extraordinarily busy and we have something like, oh, oh the number's going down all the time, but there's about around 20,000 genes doing literally millions of jobs. And every gene is very busy. Every gene does a lot of things. Every gene affects many different systems, pretty much. So you have to think in terms of the genome when you think in terms of change. Because you change one gene, you change a lot of things. Because that has ricocheting knock-on effects throughout the uh, developmental process. So, but we have very reductionist minds and we love reductionist explanations. And you can find examples of, of this 
all over the place. You don't have to look at genes to think of us as wanting simple, simplistic, reductionist explanations of things. That's just the way our minds work. And that is because our minds are not fine-tuned necessarily to do the best job in everything. I mean, I think we've, a lot of us have been very excited about the possibilities of, you know, the Human Genome Project and 23andMe. I've sent my spit off to 23andMe and expecting to learn all sorts of stuff about myself. And I learned one thing, which is I'm not annoyed by people who eat. And <laughs> I was like, <laughs> and I was like, well, okay, that, that's good to know. I mean, I already knew that, but I did learn that there was a gene apparently for that, that coded for people not liking the sound of chewing, but that I don't think I got my money's worth. <laughs> well, at least you didn't get, get any shocks. I know people who've had their sort of family law confirmed. And I know other people that have had really eye-opening results that probably shouldn't discuss in public. Right. Well, maybe I will once my relatives <laughs> do the same. But you do mention that there are these studies, right? These GWAS studies that are very popular and what they're, you know, essentially looking for are correlations between certain genes and, and certain features and, and characteristics. Are those studies mis misinterpreted or are they overvalued or what can we get from these studies? Well, GWAS is, is a big industry. There's no, there's no question. There's a lot of money in GWAS these days, but you have this situation where all of these populations have to be sort of pre-classified in order to be studied in this way. And of course they don't say we're classifying populations, GWAS studies. They say we're stratifying our studies, our samples. Of course, you have to do that if you're going to study them in this way, but that already is biasing. Yes. If the sample is not a real thing, then you really can't trust what comes out of the end of the study. And so Rob DeSalle and I are particularly concerned about the use of this in racial medicine and uh, other areas where racial classifications are used. And we're all, we're all obliged to classify ourselves. The government insists on it in many cases, and the classification itself really means nothing. And everybody's very upset when they have to classify themselves because we're all mongrels one way or another. The history of humankind, if there's one thing that we've learned from all of these genetic studies is that people have moved and they have always moved and they're always going to move. And the only thing to do is to go with the flow, try and manage that movement to in the most humane way possible, because population movement is often of course had very adverse consequences for resident peoples. So what we, what, what we know is that we are a glorious mishmash of a species that may have. You talk about 14, 14 distinct waves of emigration from Africa, big waves that have happened over time. How do we know about that? And I like the stuff about the click languages, right? So what we look for is what the source is where we have maximum genetic diversity, or I guess in language, it would be maximum phoneme diversity. You tend to get the most phonemes apparently. Now I'm no linguist, but there was a study done several years ago that found that the, the, the most, the maximum number of phonemes is in, um, in Africa, and the further away you go from Africa, the fewer phonemes you have. And apparently the fewest of all are on a couple of Pacific islands. 
And that's because this complexity tends to get lost. When a population moves, it's going, it's at risk of losing something that it started with. And that means that this, this pattern of in, increasing or decreasing diversity as you go away from Africa means that probably the source, the original source was Africa itself. Now you've also in this book with Rob, you're critical of evolutionary psychologists and you say that they're too, too eager to find kind of mismatches between our so-called caveman intuition and the world in which we find ourselves. And you talk a bit about kind of understanding behavior as really resulting from norms of reaction rather than kind of hardwired impulses. Why people lose all their money in the stock market or whatever. It's it's like, well, they didn't have the stock market back in the caves at Lascaux. So, of course, they're not going to figure out what's going on here. Is this way of thinking too simplistic? Yes, it is. It comes back to our reductionist tendencies again. I mean, that's a very reductionist way of looking at things. And it's a very neat sort of uh, algorithm to say, okay, well, we're crazy. We act in self-destructive ways. We're patently imperfect creatures, but we're the product of natural selection. And that must mean that we are in some way perfected. So we must have been perfected for something else than we're experiencing right now. So what that means is then that we are stuck with our uh, Ice Age behaviors, but it's not the Ice Age anymore. And so we're behaving in inappropriate ways. And I think that is absolutely ridiculous. The fact is that we are a very young species that switched algorithm, which switched mental algorithm very, very recently. That would be within the last uh, 100,000 years. And that it happened almost instantaneously. From the very beginning of finding symbolic artifacts to finding the cave of Chauvet with something, with, with some of the, the greatest art that was ever, ever done in the history of humankind with just a few tens of thousands of years, which is an eye blink in, uh, in evolutionary time. And it's certainly no time in which anything could significantly have happened by natural natural selection. And what happened was we got this new way of crunching information and we're still exploring really how to use it. We didn't know how to use it at all to begin with. And this is still, we're still a, a, a work in progress, but it is an incredible flexibility. It's, we have gone from hunters and gatherers to city dwellers and moonwalkers in an incredibly short uh, space of time. And that ability has been conferred upon us by this acquisition that we discovered how to use a hundred thousand years ago, but we're not condemned to use it in any particular way. We're still feeling our way. And that's why we're so imperfected is that we have this incredible ability and we still don't know quite properly how to use it. I want to get back to the issue of race, right? You wrote a whole book on this, your predecessors, right? Anthropologists in, in the 19th century, I think probably bear a lot of the blame for the, the creation of these essentialist categories. Have we done a, an adequate, thorough enough job of eradicating this way of thinking in the human sciences? Or is there some legacy that is still with us that we need to purge? It's a good question. I'd say we've come a long way in the sciences. The sciences have managed to get away from uh, essentialist thinking in most realms. But it still lingers in, in society. 
But it's only been the last couple of hundred years, really, the last 250 years, that in which we really have gotten away from Aristotle and his predecessors, of whom we know nothing, but Aristotle didn't come out of nowhere either. So it's been a very ingrained way of looking at things. And in my own area of biology, we see it in the way in which our notions of species have changed, for example. And Darwin was one of the first people to recognize how important it was that species were not only not monolithic, but that they were variable, and that was what made them dynamic systems. And I think within science, this sort of thing is fully appreciated. In the population and knowledge, probably less so. But you would probably have a better perspective on that than I would. Yeah, we still have a ways to go. You, When you're talking about the brain, I thought there was some interesting speculation towards the end of the Masters of the Planet where you were talking about the role of working memory. And everyone wants to know, like, what is that magic physiological part of the human creature, which is what you know makes us special? So there's back and forth prefrontal cortex, and but you highlight the angular gyrus as the potential epicenter of humanity, right? Tell us a little more about what is the importance of working memory to making us human? Oh, working memory is an interesting thing because it's one of those things that has been picked out by certain people as something that is absolutely critical in um, reasoning the way that we do. We ought to have a lot of RAM, you know, to put the information in. Turns out not to be true, unfortunately. It turns out that chimpanzees have got better working memory than we do. Completely untutored chimpanzee at a, at a keyboard can remember which, the order in which squares on the screen were flashing much better than any human being can do. So again, working memory is obviously a necessary condition for thinking the way we do, but it's not the sufficient condition. We haven't found what that condition is. It's clearly... Well, the way that we think has to do with connectivity inside the brain. It has to do with the way in which information is transferred. And so it has to do, must have to do with physical pathways and physical neuronal projects. And we're learning more about that all the time. But if there is a key, if there is a key thing, it hasn't been fingered yet. I suspect that it's a concatenation of a whole lot of things that happened. In the brain, when we got at the origin of Homo sapiens, when we acquired the brain that we have today. And one thing that I've been thinking about since uh, I wrote that book, so it's not in there, is that this surely has to do with something to do with the way in which our brains have shrunk in the last 10,000, 20, 30,000 years. In, um, Richard Rangan would say it shrunk because we're, we no longer need the reactive violence and the limbic system has shrunk. We don't know about the insides of brains, as, as I said before, so it's, it's really hard to opine about that. But my take on it would be that simply the symbolic algorithm for using your brain, as opposed to the old intuitive algorithm, maybe in a sort of a brute force algorithm by which how smart you were scaled with brain size. And that's probably why we have this inexorable, apparently inexorable growth of the hominid brain or within the genus Homo over the last two, uh, two million years. But humans don't have that kind of brain. They have a symbolic brain. And I think the symbolic algorithm is simply more frugal. It's simply more energetically efficient. And you don't have any more brain than you need because it's very expensive to carry a lot of extra brain tissue. 
around. Your brain accounts for a disproportionate amount of the uh, energy that you use, you know, compared to other tissues of the body. So you don't want to have a bigger brain than you need. And modern humans with a symbolic brain could get by with less brain tissue. And that's what happened. In the Pleistocene, in the, uh, in the Ice Age, the average size of a Homo sapiens brain was about 1,500 cubic centimeters. That's exactly the same size functionally as the uh, Neanderthal brain as well. And now we're down to 1,330 cubic centimeters, so 13% uh, reduction in, in brain size. And it has to have to do with the way in which we're using our brains. Well, couldn't it be also that we now have cloud storage in the form of culture, right? So that could, it could have an, an effect, but remember everybody had to know and remember everything until very, very recently. I mean, it's only been the last, well, we've only had written information storage for 5,000 years and much less than that effectively. I mean, it was all tax records, you know, first few thousand years, we didn't have literature, we didn't have encyclopedias or whatnot, until much more recently than that. Yeah, that, my graduate work was in tax history, so that's the furthest back you can go. <laughs> so, but one other thing that's unique about humans is that we intentionally inflict brain damage on ourselves through the consumption of alcohol. And so I think you've taken a, a recent research interest in alcohol and this is an interesting departure. What inspired you, apart from the consumption of alcohol with your co-author, to pursue this line of research? Well, what happened there was um, that somebody asked the Rob, Rob DeSalle, my co-author, to do a book on wine for reasons that neither of us understands. And he's a beer guy, right? And so he came to me and said, look, I don't know anything about wine. I know about natural history, but not about wine. Let's do this together. So we did this book on the natural history of wine jointly. And then because he was a beer guy, we had to do a book on beer for him. And after that, we thought, well, you know, why not go all the way and do a book on spirits too? And that's what we're putting the finishing touches to right now. Humans are not the only ones that consume alcohol. I think Rob Dunn, who I interviewed earlier, he talks about how our, we have other animals that will seek out beverages that kind of alcoholic content. So it's not the only ones. I think probably we're the only ones that do it for the purpose of inebriation, but we've been drinking alcohol for an awful long time. And, and I think there's some people that make the claim that agriculture was invented as a way of feeding our beer habit more than the reverse. No, that's right. The salt cats had that idea about the, uh, about brewing in the, the Neolithic. And it is interesting because uh, yeah, it seems to me that most animals go for for alcohol if they can get it. Some don't. Some have an aversion to it. But a uh, attraction to alcohol is a very, very widespread thing in nature. But what's unusual about humans is they can make as much of it as they want. And so it has a completely different role in their lives. So I don't know if you've seen any of those hilarious YouTube clips uh, showing apparently sozzled elephants lying around in a pile and trying to get up. I mean, it's, it's really very amusing me if, if sad at the same time, but I'm also told that an elephant is such a big creature that it would have to eat an unimaginable amount of fermenting amarula fruit to actually make drunk. So I don't know what to make of this, but what I do know is that both humans and chimpanzees and gorillas have a version of the alcohol dehydrogenase gene that produces an absolutely amazing, a 40-fold more effective 
metabolism of alcohol than you have without it. So we're able to tolerate large amounts of alcohol compared to what any other creature is uh, really able to tolerate. And that mutation came into our lineage before the separation between the lineage going to the modern African apes and to ourselves. So it's been around 10 million years. So that's a very long time and obviously didn't come to, into existence in the context of alcohol per se. It's just something that happened. And then 10 million years later, we come along and we invent how to make alcohol at will and produce as much of it as we want. And we have the genomic wherewithal to deal with it. So it's a happy coincidence. But of course, it, it brought along its own problems in its wake as well. But alcohol seems to play a very important role in the formation of human social groups and bonding. I think certainly those of us who have been forced to go to corporate happy hours, right? I mean, the, these are very important things, particularly in cultures where people don't trust one another unless they imbibe alcohol together. Is Have we co-evolved culturally to have alcohol as, as a crutch or an integral part of how we think socially and interact socially? We all have an attraction to, to alcohol and every society deals with that in its own way. So it's, yes, it's very deeply bound up in culture. As you're saying, there was, I believe that the first uh, European traders who went to Japan were very surprised by the fact that everybody at a business meeting was supposed to get drunk because then deception was much less likely. If everybody was drunk, the truth would come out. And that's one way of dealing with different human failing. But every culture deals with alcohol in its own way. And our culture, for example, is extremely ambivalent about alcohol. It doesn't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. And of course, it's both. And this is typical of human experience. You can, everything is on a bell curve. You can't have the bad without the good. There's a better end of the curve and there's a worse end of the curve. You can't really have the one without the other. So this is just a sort of microcosm of broader human experience. And that, well, the capacity to process alcohol is not uniform across humans, right? There's, there's quite a bit of, of variation. Uh, what's the, what, is there an explanation for that? An environmental explanation for the, this disparity in alcohol? consumption capacity? No, I, I think uh, if you, the only explanation would be an unacceptably reductionist one. But honestly, lots of things happen in nature. Lots of things happen in evolution for entirely random reasons. And we're all ultimately descended from very small local populations that probably incorporated a lot of random changes because small populations uh, you can get the fixation of genes very easily for non-functional purposes and uh, i think the fact that east asians particularly have uh, trouble metabolizing and people descended from them have uh, trouble uh, metabolizing alcohol is is an example of this it's a local peculiarity that uh, we can explain and probably doesn't have any any rational explanation is just something that happened. Well, Ian, hopefully at some point we can get together and have a toast, have a glass of wine, swing by if you're in the Bay Area, and we can uh, break open a bottle from my cellar. Thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Masters of the planet, 
check it out, The Accidental Homo Sapiens. Quite a few other books worth investigating. And certainly, if you are interested in, in wine, as I am, A Natural History of Wine. Thanks, Ian. Well, thank you very much, Ray. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.